Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome Solar Warriors. Thanks so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got. That's your time. I know that you could be doing many different things right now, so I really genuinely appreciate that you are here spending time with us. And if you're new here, I hope that you'll get a ton of value from this episode and I hope that everyone else does as well. But I really particularly want to thank you for showing up and giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's entrepreneur is none other than Erica Mackey of Grid Alternatives. Now for most of our solar industry OGs and our folks in California and the DC MDV area, you'll need no introduction to Erica Mackey. But for the rest of you, I today get a chance to introduce you to a true solar pioneer and a genuinely beautiful person that I've enjoyed getting to know. I first met Erica way back in 2008 when I did my first volunteer installation in San Jose, California of a solar array for a family that benefited from the program that Grid Alternatives developed some two decades ago. Today, Erica and I are going to talk about the how and why she co-founded Grid Alternatives way back in 2001 and has developed it into a major national nonprofit and solar installation company that provides renewable technology and job and workforce training for free to low-income families. But in truth, the business model, success, and impact of Grid Alternatives is multifaceted. And I have really enjoyed getting to learn more about how Erica put it all together and what it means for equity, inclusion, diversity, and access to energy for all. And if you like what you hear on this episode, I hope that you'll subscribe to Suncast as that will ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Hey, if you like what you hear in this Suncast episode, won't you please subscribe to the show as that'll ensure you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out nearly 400 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. That's also where you'll find our show notes, links to all the goodies, resources, books, and more that we often uncover in the course of our conversations. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, I am super excited about this conversation. As I mentioned in the lead up, Erica is one of the pioneers in the solar industry, one of the folks that I've looked to my entire career, you know, having founded Grid Alternatives way back in 2001. Her two decades of growth, entrepreneurship, uh, and influence are instructive in many ways. And today we're going to explore those. 
I'm so happy to have you on Suncast. Finally, Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, I truly mean it when I say that I am overjoyed to have you on Suncast. As as you'll know, but listeners maybe uh, don't, it's a long time coming. I've had uh, two other uh, amazing Grid Alternatives guests, and I've been in the patient long game of figuring out, like, when is it going to be right to have Erica on the show? And then I saw you on Biden's Climate Summit, and I thought, well, now she's definitely going to come on Suncast. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to get, obviously, we're going to talk about the start of and running Grid Alternatives. But before we do that, most folks may not know uh, much about your background. Uh, You're from the Midwest, and I'd like to get a sense from, from you of how a sense of place and maybe even the cultural sense of being a Midwesterner has had uh, an impact on who you feel like you've become as an adult. Like how did growing up in the Midwest inform the way that you kind of walk through the world? I feel like when I meet Midwesterners, there's some sort of uh, connection in terms of there's like a really interesting way in which we grow up in this sort of like nobody's too big for their britches kind of um, attitude, right? It's not California. It's not New York. It's not the South. It's like it's the middle of the country. And I grew up in a pretty rural place in Michigan. You know, we lived in the woods. Behind our house was a lane and then the cornfield and behind that a river. And I could play anywhere. And I think there's something about both the down-to-earthness of the community in which I lived that was sort of like, well, if your neighbor needs help, bring a dish to the potluck and let's get busy. And also the sense of taking care of land. Like my dad was recycling before there was recycling. He just used the cans in the garden and, you know, took the garbage out and dumped it in a compost pile and turned it over. So that sort of, you know, just make the most of what you have, reuse, be resourceful, feels like it's a part of who I am. And uh, as we start to talk about grid, I think there is something that feels both true to who I am just as a person and probably is related to my growing up where, you know, I'm happy to talk to anybody. I don't really think of myself as I really just have this, don't get too big for your britches, like remember where right. you came from kind of stuff in the back of my head. And that feels, it feels like that was something that was ingrained in me as a kid. I love the the phrase, too big for your britches. I grew up in the rural South, South Carolina, and it's definitely a phrase that I've heard all my life because <laughs> mm-hmm. I often, um, as a, as a moderately small uh, human being uh, of uh, all of five, four and a half I often had to sort of project that too big for your britches kind of uh, persona. I have a funny story. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of like that. Okay. You know, I mean, I feel like I feel like I've done a pretty good job with my career. You know, I feel proud. 
my dad came to visit us in Oakland and we have a bunch of fruit trees in our backyard and the apple tree had a lot of apples on it. And he was like, you know, I'm so proud of you. And I was like, I don't think he told me that about grid, but the apple tree really did it for him. <laughs> yeah, I can totally identify. My my story would be around a chicken coop that I built in my con my my carpenter dad. Nice. Just just so <laughs> showing this sense of pride in workmanship that he mm-hmm. never showed towards my entrepreneur career. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I recently actually I recently sat down with him. He said, you know, I listened to your show. And I was like, you mean Suncast? <laughs> he said, he's like, yeah. He's like, I'm driving along. I'm listening to this guy and I'm thinking, who the heck is this guy? Is this is this my son? <laughs> Love it. Uh, and he had like, he had some really affirming things to say that I won't go into, but it was one of those moments where it was like, golly, I'm 40, almost 42 years old. And finally, like, I get that sense of satisfaction that my father mm-hmm. acknowledges the work that I'm doing. Erica, you know, you're probably the last person that needs any acknowledgement for the work that you're doing. And I get the sense that a large component of grid alternatives is in supporting understanding and allowing access to resources, uh, in fact, bolstering equity in the kinds of resources and and technology even that don't always make it to uh, certain communities in equal distribution. You know, specifically, I, I know that we'll get into kind of what the mission of GRID is, but having spent time on a rooftop as a volunteer for GRID, I could see that a lot of the Recipients of projects with grid alternatives, you know, are low to middle income families uh, and didn't represent the kinds of, it certainly, <clears throat> certainly was true when I was starting my company, the kinds of families who would use their home mortgage or, or, or home equity line or even their savings to pay for solar projects. So I'd like to get a sense from you about the, about the origin of grid alternatives. I I'm an engineer. Um, I'm sort of a social worker turned engineer, turned something back in between. And I took a circuitous route to graduating from engineering school. And when I did, I got a job for this energy efficiency consulting firm in San Francisco. And uh, we did things like audit every Verizon building on the Eastern Seaboard and then write up a big report about how Verizon could save money or go to Beale Air Force Base in California and look at all of their buildings and then, you know, look at fans and chillers and boilers. And um, then the company I worked for was owned by a mechanical construction firm and they would then bid on the work and, you know, sort of upgrade the system. So it was renewable energy and energy efficiency. And Tim Sears, the other co-founder of Grid Alternatives and I, we got on the same travel schedule. So, you know, they'd say like, Tim and Erica, can you go to New York for three weeks? Tim and Erica, can you go to Alaska for three weeks? Tim and Erica, can you go to XYZ place? And while it was really interesting work, I didn't really love it. (laughs) You know, I had sort of thought that energy was going to really make me feel kind of way in the world. And I couldn't, it felt like I was writing book reports for big corporations. And then I'd fly home to Oakland and it was not that, you know, solar has been around a long time, but it felt in those days, like really the beginning of an industry. It was pre 
whatever Schwarzenegger's million solar roofs, right, and pre-California solar initiative. You know, I, Valma across the street was like, I can't pay my electricity bills and it's so high. And I was like, how come Valma can't get solar and Verizon can? You know, it just seemed wrong. And so on one of those business trips, Tim and I were like, I was like, I don't like this job. He was like, me either. <laughs> like, what should we do? And I had said that to a lot of people. You know, I'm kind of a blabber mouth. And if I'm unhappy about something, I, I tell people. And uh, there was just some sort of like, like a click or a, a seriousness in the way in which we were talking about like, well, what would you want to do? What would, what would be different? What could, what could make a difference? What, what would we want to do? What job would we want to have? And really we spent a couple years just going out to dinner once a month and thinking about that. And I, I do feel that that long lead up, you know, it wasn't like I I had a clear vision of what I wanted to do. It was that I was geeky about renewable technology. I liked energy efficiency and I didn't want to write a book report for Verizon. And so we really, over time, sort of hatched the idea of what has become grid alternatives. And that's the beginning. I think the the start, the middle and where we are is really not the Tim and Erica show. It's that it's become so much more. It's really, we learned from every person who volunteered or gave us advice or worked with us. And I think we're still on that learning journey. What was the impetus for deciding what business model to use? How how did you guys work through that? (laughs) I, I feel like... You know, I should have a much better answer. You know, I went to business school and I came up with this brilliant idea and then here we go. But, you know, we had a we had an idea that was on a napkin. And at some point in time, we thought, you know, we were writing some grant proposals and trying to talk about it. And we thought, well, you know, if we're really going to make a go of it, we have to take a flying leap out of corporate America and land in the back bedroom of my rented Berkeley apartment um, and, you know, do it full time. And what we would do is we would talk to anybody who would talk to us. So anyone we could think of who might be willing to take a meeting, we'd go in and tell them what we wanted to do. And we still really only had a napkin, right? It wasn't a business plan. We would say, well, we want to do this. We want to do what those people did or it looks like that. And people would say to us, well, you're going to have insurance, right? And then we'd like say, oh, of course we're going to have insurance. We'd go close the door and be like, how do we get insurance? Right? And I, I say this because it's the same thing with the business plan. I remember, um, I think the words they used was strategic plan as opposed to business plan. But in those days, it was sort of interchangeable. It was like, what in the world are you planning out here? And someone said, well, we'd like you to send us your strategic plan. And we were like, how much time do we have to send it to you? And we close the door. It's like, Google, quick, what is a strategic plan? How to write strategic <laughs> strategic plan. Exactly. <laughs> I was 
like download a version of somebody else's and then like fill it in. So I don't think we were that brilliant um, in terms of really coming up with a business plan. But I think there's some, you know, we're both engineers and engineers are pretty linear. It's like, okay, put this on the spreadsheet and then calculate the next thing and the next thing. And I'm, um, you know, sort of list oriented myself just already <laughs> sort of out of the box list oriented. And so we would just you know, we would get some people that would ask us good questions or give us advice, and then we'd add it to the list. And so it just became this iterative process of building out, well, how are we going to pay for it? How is this going to work? And, you know, what we did in the early days to pay for it if we can even call it pay for it, is not what we do now and is not what we did five years ago either. So it's the the business plan is ever evolving and ever ever iterative. And certainly we're smarter now than we <laughs> we were 20 years ago. So we, we have more than a napkin, but it's still an iterative process. For those who perhaps are completely unfamiliar with grid alternatives, could you summarize what that initial idea was that you guys started to build a strategic plan around and then I'll get into what it, how you do it today. I think at that time it was really about how does everyone have access to solar, right? And there's many things that have evolved the everyone has really stayed the same. The technology has become much more expansive. And we really, workforce development is an integral part of what we do now, but wasn't in those early days. So the the early thought was, how does Valma and everyday people get solar as opposed to wealthy environmentalists in the Bay Area, the the hills and the flats are how we <laughs> how we have an economic divide. So how does, you know, how do people in the flats get solar was kind of the the gist. And the way in which we paid for it in a way was get some solar contractors to volunteer, get some manufacturers to donate some stuff, and then ask all of our friends and family and everybody in the neighborhood to come bring a dish to the potluck, roll up their sleeves and put up solar. And uh, so that was very much the origin. And we've certainly, we certainly have that as our roots, but it's way more expansive. And we've really metamorphosized in terms of like our understanding. I think in those days, we didn't really have a great understanding of the ways in which systemic racism in particular are part of our energy system and our housing system and how we got to here. I think we more were like, oh, we're geeky about solar, it should be for everyone. And, you know, I love the way in which I personally have learned so much and GRID's mission and the way in which we do our work has really morphed and deepened. I mean, I, I volunteered for Habitat. My dad was a contractor. I kind of grew up in this world where I also grew up in uh, in the rural south in a church. And so there was a lot of barn raisings. There was a lot of uh, roll up your sleeves and help your neighbors type of thing. Did you see and do you feel like others kind of saw uh, Grid at that time as like a Habitat for Humanity oriented kind totally. of nonprofit for solar? Yeah, 
I think uh, we were certainly like that. In fact, people would talk about us that way. And Habitat was a really early partner of ours, too. So we were also, you know, they were kind of our nonprofit mentor. And we would install solar on Habitat houses. Um, so we we did a lot of, like, our second project um, ever was with Habitat Greater San Francisco. And, you know, they were pretty small at the time. We were small. Can you give a sense of scale, like the evolution of grid? Maybe uh, <laughs> if you have the numbers off the tip of your tongue, then like the, the amount of kilowatts that you installed the first year versus the amount of megawatts that you guys are typically installing now. Oh, in the early days, it was tiny. I don't actually uh-huh. know how many megawatts we're installing uh, this year. It grows every year, but we do have it on our website. So maybe I'll click yeah. on the website and click on the, we have something called it. the impact calcu- calculator and it draws right from Salesforce, uh, which is what we use to track all of our work. I think if you want to think about scale of growth in 2003 or maybe it was 2004, I think we maybe like bridged sort of the end of 2003 into 2004. We did two projects the entire year. And Tim and I installed them ourselves. We invited anybody we knew to install it with us. We barely knew how to install solar. So we had these contractor friends who came and helped us. Um, We didn't even have tools. We borrowed the tools from the tool lending library in Berkeley. (laughs) Yes. I mean, oh like my gosh. Super, super scrappy, you know. And then we had this party at the end of the year and we were like, we are a smashing success. You know, you sort of fast forward the next year. I don't know if we did 16 houses and the year after that, 30. And, you know, somewhere along there, we grew to have, you know, different offices. We started serving Los Angeles and San Diego. We opened a Fresno office. You know, today, particularly because we're not just doing uh, residential solar, we're also working on affordable housing, we're doing community solar that all serves both renters and uh, homeowners that are income qualified. So, you know, we we've I think we've served like 20,000 families and have, um, you know, installed like 200 megawatts or something like that. Not not in a year, that but over time. Nuts. So it's multi- 200 megawatts. <laughs> I never would have guessed that. I'm looking right? at the calculator now and the lifetime savings is a number that is, it must be for you, like really inspiring and even humbling, like over a half a billion dollars in lifetime savings through grid alternatives projects. Yeah, it's Ugh. a big deal. And I think, you know, what that really is, is like, I, I, we love megawatts and we talk about megawatts at grid, but we also talk about like, well, it doesn't count if it wasn't done with equity, if it wasn't done with heart, if it isn't actually, you know, this is not, we're not in the business of trading one bill for another. And I know that there's many companies that are in that business and it's not that I fault them, but that isn't our business model. You know, we really want to think about deep equity and part of that for us also means maximizing savings, maximizing jobs in community, maximizing, you know, career growth opportunities, wealth building. And so, you know, at the individual level, that's all families, right? And families who 
can spend more money on things they want to do as opposed to spend money on utilities. And the families we're serving, most of them are paying more of their take home on utility costs than um, the sort of mainstream market. And right, as a percentage, I yeah. think, you know, we have lots of really heartfelt stories about folks who are like, well, I can now use the money for this or that. One of the stories that feels really powerful to me as a client who said, well, I'm going to go on vacation with the savings. And we got a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, sort of judgy about like what people should. I'm like, everybody should have a vacation. I think there's something really interesting about the way in which our work interfaces with the solar industry is that, you know, we're really just serving regular folks, working folks who deserve solar, um, like we all deserve solar, and in many instances are closest to climate injustice, right? If you're closest to the problem, you have the best sense of the solutions. If you've got polluting highways in your neighborhood, you can guarantee you understand transportation and clean mobility, right? So it's like that's super localized, that pollution. If you can't replace the food in your refrigerator when the utility shuts you down for a you know planned power outage, you're really aware of what resiliency looks like. I think think that there's something that I think is really embedded a little bit, not even a little bit. I think there's something that's embedded a lot in the way in way at which sort of white dominant culture thinks about privilege and maybe doesn't think about privilege and then says, oh, well, you know, grid alternatives should really be like what somebody should be doing with the savings is like barely getting by as opposed to going on vacation. And I think that that um, that has been something that we really been in the last, um, you know, five years or something really pushing against, which is, you know, equity in this renewable transition is not about some kind of poverty porn about how the solar industry can save folks. This is about incredibly resilient communities who, um, you know, have the like sense of the solutions, have like incredibly longstanding environmental and, um, you know, future facing um, goals around climate and um, matching this really amazing technology and the job opportunity and wealth creation as part of this clean transition with those communities. And so, um, you know, grid in many ways as like a bridge builder in that world. It's so funny, the like the way when we're in conversation, I have things obviously that I want to talk about and um, or ask about rather, but I also want to be in in the moment with you. And it's interesting for me that you came back around to this bridge building idea because it's one of the things that when I look at the impact calculator, you talk about the 600 plus million in savings, which is important and it's impactful. And how folks um, can then convert that savings into other uh, life-affirming activity is, uh, is, is wonderful. One of the things that you said early was that 
you didn't intend or at least start out with this, uh, this eye towards workforce development. Yet one of the things that most people think about when they look at grid today is one of the preeminent, certainly in the solar space, workforce development firms. And when I had an interview with Nicole uh, before she moved on, um, when she was running uh, the Mid-Atlantic for Grid, Nicole Steele, we talked about a story, uh, and there are many, of the, the stories of folks getting back on their feet through the workforce development program, finding a career, getting a chance to rent an apartment for the first time. How have you seen as an organization, this idea of workforce development grow and add to the story of equity that GRID is about? Yeah, I think it really started with folks who wanted careers and found us and, you know, you like use the tools of uh, you can come out and get your hands dirty and learn how to install solar as a way to a career path. Right. So I think, you know, we may not have set out to be a workforce development organization, but people saw that the value in that hands on experience. So somebody would apply to get a job and they, you know, the folks would say, well, you have no experience. And they would come out and volunteer with Grid Alternatives and get that experience and get that job. And then they come back and they'd say, I got a job because I volunteered with y'all. Um, and then, you know, we had really smart folks working at Grid who um, continued to really develop the way in which we were doing our installation work. So it really became this, what I would call the teaching hospital of solar, right? At some point in time, you got to get out of the lab and operate on a real body, right? Um, and uh, I, at, at Grid, we became the sort of on-the-job, real-world experience that people could get to um, get a job in the growing industry. And I think that, you know, I grew up with the solar industry in a way. Um, you know, we were pretty young when we started Grid and it also our our growth around workforce development mirrored the growth of the solar industry and we would then hear from contractors or solar companies well our biggest barrier to growth is we can't find people to hire and that's still today we still hear that yeah and that was such an opportunity because we're already in community so um instead of uh, you know folks driving in you know volunteering well why don't neighborhood folks just come out and get that experience. And I think over time, then that developed into, you know, we do a lot of paid on the job, job training now where we're paying folks while they learn, which is really important, you know, sort of, it sort of deepens over time, right? In the early days, we didn't either have the money or even the knowledge that that was really important. But now we very much get that, you know, there's the hard skills of installing solar, there's the skills around selling solar, designing solar, that kind of stuff that's really important. And there's all of the other, you know, sort of like employee readiness skills that um, are really critical. And then I would say we're even going farther these days that it's not just about the technical skills, the wraparound services, the job readiness skills, but it's also about what do we use as our role in the solar industry to what I would call school the solar industry to be a better employer. 
because we also now have folks that are like, I have all the skills and I'm still not getting the job because the industry is biased or I get the job and it's a really not good experience because um, the industry um, is mostly white, mostly male, um, and isn't really supportive of me as a, you know, whoever is entering in that job and having a not excellent experience. And so, you know, we've gone, we've gone from just like, you come out and volunteer once and get a few skills to, you know, we have a whole 200 hour program that we call Installer Basic Training 200. We have, um, you know, some wraparound services. We do job placement and we're working on thinking through with the industry. How do we help um, make the industry a better place to work? And one of the things that I think is unique about Grid is that we are also the industry, right? Like, it's not that we just train people and they go somewhere else. We also are one of those employers that people go to because we roll trucks, we install stuff, we design stuff. And so to be both the trainer and the employer puts us in a really unique position to help um, other companies um, become great employers. You know, I believe project developers really are the unsung heroes of the energy sector, and it's high time we had our own project management software built for us, by us. Email, Dropbox, MS Project, you know, they might help you get by, but truly in a post-COVID-19 world, we need to move faster online. With decades of experience moving projects from idea to operation, our friends at Enion know firsthand just how painful it can be relying on generalist software to get projects over the line. So I'd like to encourage you to give Enion Project Manager a try for free today. Enjoy enhanced security and cooperation with your entire team. Centralize your tasks, teams, files, and financials all in one secure place. Deliver more projects fast and at a lower cost. Go sign up today for free at www.enian.co. Oh. What's been your experience in sort of learning how, as the CEO, to manage both handing off responsibilities, but also attracting people that uh, complement what the team needs to grow and surrounding yourself with these people who are smart and capable and help the organization grow? Uh, can you talk a bit about your growth as a CEO by like learning how to let go of things? I haven't really struggled letting go. Uh, this is not really. I'm like, thank God you're here. Here's here's all this stuff. Well, can I can I ask you a question really quick on that? Like, do you think that that is tied to the fact that as a nonprofit business model, it was more of a barn raising where it's like this doesn't have to be done perfectly? Perhaps. I think you know we also. Definitely. I, I think people tell you this, right? Hire people smarter than yourself or hire people different than yourself. Hire people that um, are going to complement your, you know, Achilles heels. And I think we've done some of that. I think we have really brilliant entrepreneurs within the organization who have helped us morph, grow, change, shrink, grow again, you know, that kind of stuff. And today, 
one of the things we try so hard to do is to lean into our values and how like how does that show up how do we walk the walk how do we talk the talk at the organization and i do think at this juncture people are really attracted to us because both the mission facing externally centers equity, but the way in which we do our work um, is on a learning journey to always center equity. And so I think that's pretty unique. There are certainly other organizations that are farther along on a journey or have different skills or in no way more than us. Um, and we're all really making it together. For me, that's one of the things right now that keeps me here is that I like learning and I like creating. And so the learning and creating uh, go really nicely as you're trying to figure out who are you as an organization? How do you do the work in a way that's sustainable? And specifically in the time that we're in, you know, both we're, we're coming out of a pandemic or in a pandemic, depending on who you talk to or what news you read. And uh, we are going through a racial reckoning as a country. We Work has changed. People are thinking differently about place and work and the type of work and how much work. And and so at GRID, we do a lot of thinking about how do we not become an extractive, how do we not buy into an extractive economy that exploits people, that, um, you know, sees sort of widgets and numbers and biggering as the, as the goal. And so that has become really powerful in terms of attracting talent that I think that feels really different to people when they come in and the we certainly make mistakes all the time. And it is very clear that we are committed to a racial justice and equity learning journey. And on, on that point, um, it's another, uh, I think, really important element that as a 40 something white man, I acknowledge that I have blind spots that I don't always think, I, don't know, I almost hesitate to say this, but like equity first. I don't, I mean, oftentimes I think like what's best for my family and how can I grow my career and how do I have an impact? What does that impact look like? And um, does that impact uh, include others? I would say like less fortunate, but like, I don't even know what words to use. So I, I think my question for you is um, how do we do it better? And, I, and by we, I mean, specifically like us white men in some simple, some like semblance of leadership in the industry. I feel like Grid thinks on behalf of our industry for on these types of topics oftentimes, and I, it, it shouldn't be outsourced in that way. Uh, and I know that there are folks in Grid who spend a lot of time helping, like you said, helping uh, industry organizations, companies that are leading our industry think about uh, improving diversity and equity and inclusion in their organizations. What are some of the things over the last um, year plus in particular that Grid uh, or maybe even Erica that you uh, have influenced that for me as a, a white male, you know, I'll call pseudo leader in our industry, I could, I could begin to think about what questions should I be asking myself or what resources should I be looking to, 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 to know where I have blind spots? You know, there's been a lot written about sort of the levels of 
unpacking particularly systemic racism and white supremacist culture. Um, and, you know, what I've come to understand on my learning journey is that there are these different levels, right? Like there's the personal work that people need to do. And I think in business context, that often gets left off, right? That's like, oh, let's just do the the work at this sort of like policy level internal to our organization. But then you don't shift really the hearts and minds of the actual individuals that comprise the organization or company. So there's the personal level. There's the group, which could be the team. It could be the company. It could be the organization. And then there's the systemic beyond an individual company or an individual organization. And you really need to be as companies, my advice to solar companies is really making sure we're doing work at all three of those levels and not on the backs of emotional labor by folks most impacted. So there's certainly lots of things that white people can do to get busy, especially white CEOs and, you know, white folks in general that are leading um, some of the companies. And that's like, you know, get busy and read, right? There's a lot of reading. There's a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of folks that have put their work out there um, to learn from. And I think that's a that's a good start. And it, it does help with sort of the unpacking on the personal side to be able to then show up in a workplace in a way that for me, for instance, as a white female identified CEO, I both have to I have to try to both and so many things. So like not abdicate the positional power that I have and really step aside and listen. And I think that I get that wrong every day. And, you know, I also work to try to find that balance. And so, uh, you know, it's deep, long, lifelong work. And I think that white people in general, and I would include myself in this, are like, especially white liberals. There, And there's a particular kind of uh, a particular special brand uh, for racism that we embody, which is just tell me how to be a good person. Tell me the rules of the road. Tell me how to, you know, be uh, like a diverse organization. And that actually has a really negative impact because one, it tokenizes people. It also ignores it like personalizes is like, well, can I both be a racist and a good person? Right. I think that's like that was one of the places I've just been trying to sit is like, of course, racism in this country is like a moving sidewalk. If you just stand there, you're moving on it. Right. You have to actively turn around and walk the other direction on the moving sidewalk to have any kind of change. And I think that sort of like, I want to be a good person or just tell me the rules or tell me how not to make a mistake. It's missing the fact that there's a legacy of systemic 
oppression in this country um, and in our energy system, in our the way in which we make our money, in the way we house um, our, um, you know, our population, all of that is is much bigger than am I a good person? If we're stuck in am I a good person, um, we aren't going to make the change we need as a company or as a world. And so, uh, you know, I always tell white people, well, get busy and do your own work. It's out there, right? There's the World Wide Web. You can Google anything you want. Um, you know, start reading. And also, uh, this is a journey. It isn't like, oh, connect with this college, and then you're going to have a diverse staff and all things are going to be better. You, you got to like, you know, it's like, Yes, diversity is really important, but without inclusion or really thinking about culture or, you know, deep equity in the company and organization, you aren't, you might be able to, you know, convince somebody to come in, but you're not going to keep them. And so I, I look at companies and think, you know, we got to really think about the culture. We have to think about the way in which we're pushing power throughout the organization. How, you know, things that Grid has really tried to lean into are transparency, you know, collective decision making, clearer transparency around who is making a decision, clearer transparency around pay decisions, clearer, you know, pathways for growth. Um, a lot of that is sort of in the like, make the implicit explicit, because like any organization um, that functions within sort of a white supremacist culture, we have embodied so many things internal to grid that aren't visible. And so, you know, we have two white co-founders and leaders of the organization. And the closer you are to power, the probably the more you understand how to advance within the structure of grid alternatives, and more likely you are to be white in that kind of context um, with a white-led organization. And so really trying to like unpack and say like, okay, let's really, you know, make sure everybody has an individual development plan and career growth opportunities and we're training managers in equity and we're you know thinking a lot about our job descriptions and uh, what we what we think is required and not required and how the culture is at of individual office and who has to check themselves at the door um, and code switch to come into the organization and we don't we don't have any of it perfect. We we just have to embrace that we're going to make mistakes. I had somebody brilliant tell me um, about Grid's internal equity work. She said, you know, it's like when your house needs a deep clean, you look around, you think it looks okay. And then you open up the cupboard, you pull out all the cans, you find the cockroach in the back. And then you look around again, you're like, oh my God, this is a pigsty, right? This place is a mess. And she was like, that's our equity work, right? It's like unearthing. It's not that you know, we got worse. We just made visible the things that were already there. There's so much there. Uh, I love that, uh, the comment that you made uh, in particular about white liberal racism. Tell me how to be diverse. Basically, what are the rules of the road? And, uh, you know, I admit, I admit and acknowledge that in many ways, we are, in many ways, we're trained to think that way. 
uh, from school onwards, right? Now tell me, professor, what questions I should be asking, like, what's the test going to be about, uh, and not doing, and not doing the work ourselves, right? In many ways, like on behalf of my audience, I outsource the labor of trying to figure out equity to you and other guests by asking you a question that I truthfully haven't sat, uh, with long enough myself, Mm -hmm. right. To say, where are the cockroaches? Yeah. I went through an experience that I'm, I guess I'm still going through and evolving from where I realized, um, that not only was I born into a racist society in the rural South farmland, very split school, uh, black and white, um, very few minorities of other, um, of other, uh, uh, like a, a Asian minorities or, or other categories, you know, Hispanic and otherwise, very much grew up in a town where uh, the farmers were white, the workers were black. Didn't realize I was a racist. I remember uh, very specific moments where I was shown how racist I was. Uh, and then, uh, you know, that, the work that collectively we've been going through uh, in the last 18 months revealed to me that I'm still a racist and I didn't realize it, right? There are things that I do, choices I make, statements I make that reveal my racist tendencies, uh, my racist history. Um, and I think that we have a, yeah, we, have, we live in a society where people are much more readily willing to say, oh yeah, I see that we have systemic racism, uh, but, but that's out there, that's stuff I see on television. It's not, I don't actually, like I, I'm, I'm woke, right? I've, 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 I'm a liberal. I lived in California for eight years of my life. Like, how could you possibly say I'm racist? (laughs) Um, So I really appreciate, uh, I I have a list of things, notes I was taking just now. I want to share them with uh, my friends who, uh, not just on this show, but friends who are leaders who I know are going through the struggle of, what does this look like? How do I actually, how do I do this growth, this personal journey in a way that doesn't feel pedestrian and it doesn't, it doesn't look like I'm just trying to figure out the rules, Right. Because that doesn't work in the long run. It doesn't work. You got to, the rules are the, the, like we don't, we, yeah, we, we don't get to ask what the rules are. We have to actually figure out uh, Mm -hmm. a different way to. Yeah. I mean, our liberation is all tied. Right. And I, I just think there's something interesting to be on a, a podcast where your focus is often on entrepreneurism uh, and talking about unpacking white supremacist culture and as white people, um, you know, the two of us on this call, um, having sort of an open conversation about um, what that looks like for us. There is an, there, something in what you said is like, there's no roadmap, Right. And I think that is a very entrepreneurial thing. And, um, you know, I think we can bring those skills, comfort in discomfort, right? In, you know, if you think what we just all got in the pandemic is in our face, a lesson that the future is not certain, right? That you can't count on things, that you have to sit in a place of uncertainty. And I think we fight against that as humans. Like we want things to be certain. We want to know um, what the roadmap is or where we're going. Um, And I think there's like a part we can draw on um, that is like, change is the only constant mistakes are part of how you learn um 
you know, making sure you can kind of really sit in the uncomfortable and the uncertain and still move forward and still find a way to like fill yourself up and, uh, you know, honor your own humanity. And I think and those those lessons, they tie into uh, white people doing our own work around white supremacy. And I, I, I like that. I like how, you know, there's millions of lessons in equity in all other parts of my life. How has hiring in our industry changed in the HR department specifically? What are hiring managers needing, doing differently or needing to focus on differently, in, in particular to improve uh, diversity and inclusion. You should interview Wanda, who's our recruiter. She's an expert in this uh, particular area. I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. I'm the expert. I'm trying to sort of think in my head. Well, Eric, I would love an, uh, to interview Wanda with your permission and absolutely uh, that, uh, that introduction. Erica, I want to acknowledge, as I did in the beginning, that through the uh, the serendipity and, and growth and very intentional nature of grid, you have become a leader and a, and a, an example and even a mentor for many people in our industry. Uh, and that's been acknowledged in the work that you're doing with, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and, uh, energy access for all by, uh, you know, all, all the way up through DC. You were recently involved in president Biden's climate Summit, uh, where you talked about how renewables and climate justice can benefit the community. Uh, for those who didn't get a chance to see your uh, your your participation in the climate summit, could you summarize the message that you wanted uh, folks to hear as a contrib- contribution to the climate summit? Sure. When I think about the moment in time we are in as a country. It is really this moment where, in a way, we need to build an incredibly different. It's like this is a massive infrastructure project, regardless of whether or not you know you're talking infrastructure in the the way in which they're talking about infrastructure in D.C. We need to change in which the way in which we move ourselves from place to place, the way in which our buildings are powered, the way in which our buildings use energy, and that is a massive employment opportunity. And the main point of my the the part that I was doing in the climate summit was really around jobs. So it was, you know, a bunch of labor leaders, other organizations that are doing workforce development to really talk about not necessarily climate as the climate apocalypse, but this incredible opportunity to build wealth. And the two really big points that I wanted to make at that summit was that we can make a clean energy transition. We can do it rapidly and we can do it in a way that centers equity and benefits everyone. And that that is not only who are the end users, what neighborhoods is renewable energy in, who benefits, whose bills go down, who has access, but also who is going to build 
this massive project that we need to accomplish as a country. And the opportunity for local contractors, for the industry, the solar industry to evolve and morph and really look very differently, to really match good jobs with communities that need good jobs. That was the main point of what I was trying to get across. Yeah. Uh, you And you said something there as well um, that I'll bring in uh, from the Climate Summit that uh, we have an opportunity to own the climate future in our own community, right? It's not something that's outsourced to Silicon Valley or to your state's capital. It is something that is inherent about every community is that change is coming and we have to make massive improvement in the way that we interact with one another and with the environment and with our resources and, and be uh, more conscious and sustainable in every activity. And that happens at a local level. And it's an opportunity in every community and for everyone in that community. Uh, and I admire how GRID uh, has bridged in so many communities the opportunity for folks to participate in that climate wealth to participate in that climate action. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, it's really been a dream come true to be part of something um, like this and the the opportunity to prove on the ground the future so many folks are calling for um, is really amazing because we need to be able to picture it, right? We need we need to be able to see, well, what does that look like? What does, uh, you know, a just transition look like on the ground? What does a Green New Deal look like on the ground? Um, and that, that story, which I think uh, has been told so many times over and that GRID continues to tell, is so important to lift up at a national level because the story of community resiliency and energy sovereignty, um, particularly in tribal communities, is incredible and is inspiring and is the way in which we're going to make this transition. If you were given the opportunity, and perhaps you have, and I missed it, to give a TED Talk, what would that talk be about? I like to highlight other people's stories, right? The story of Grid Alternatives is the story of the person who has a career pathway um, and is like building a career for themselves. The story of Grid Alternatives is the person who is owning, in your words, the the clean energy future, right? And is, you know, really seeing, um, oh, I can leave a different world for my grandkids and I can, you know, change you know, in some small part, my economic situation, and I can um, really be part of a transition to clean energy. So I feel like the TED Talk of Grid Alternatives is not my TED Talk to give. It's really the TED Talk of so many who are part of the GRID family and um, who are really making changes in their own communities. So I have thought about what in the world I would talk about um, with a TED Talk. And I feel like, you know, both I could in said TED Talk lift up other people's voices um, or I could talk about specifically how leadership for me and 
vision for me has not been a solo experience. I feel like in the, you know, in the solar industry in particular, and maybe this is just in general, people like to put people up on pedestals and say, oh, that person's going to like lead us out of Sinai, right? It's like, follow. Um, And that isn't how work, in my experience, that isn't how it happens, right? There's, It's not by coincidence that I have a co-founder. It's not by coincidence that we're trying really hard to figure out what a leaderful organization looks like. And so I I feel like the biggest thing I can sort of leave in the context of climate justice is a sort of a sentiment about the collective and about the power of the collective and of the power of the messiness of that, right? That that doesn't mean everybody's all going in the same direction in a one little line. It means like people are pushing in all these different directions and it moves almost as a force. And that um, that's been my experience is that I feel honored every day to be able to come to work and do something that I like and work with amazing people and, you know, feel good at the end of the day. And it isn't my show. I'm a, a, you know, I'm a part of an ecosystem and part of a grown alternatives ecosystem, part of a larger movement around climate justice. Um, and we have one role to play, but not the only role to play. And so um, that's sort of a long winded non answer to the TED talk question. But that that's been my experience is that listening and being part of something uh, have been more important than leading. I'm sure that there are folks here uh, who want to get more of your insight or learn more about you. Where can people best engage with you? Is there a particular place that you or, or way that you like to be found? People can sign up for the Grid Alternatives newsletter. That's a great way to, uh, you know, get keep up and up to date with what we're doing. You can do that on our website at gridalternatives.org. And you can also, at some point in time here, post-pandemic, come out and actually volunteer or participate in one of our job training programs or get a system on your house. All of that can be found on our website. There's a, you know, get job training, get a system on your house, come out and volunteer section of the website. I uh, personally am on LinkedIn. Um, People can connect with me there. And, um, uh, you know, I, I try to do a bunch of different opportunities where I, you know, I'll give advice periodically. I'll take advice anytime. So I like to talk to people. Um, you know, I do have sometimes a busy uh, schedule, but I I think people can reach out to me directly. I'm happy to entertain. A, will you do a call? Will you talk about X? So um, you can connect with me a lot of different ways. Erica Mackey, what one thing do you see happening in the market? that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I don't think that no one else is tracking what I'm about to say. And I 
I think what we are looking at is the intersection of issues. And so anyone saying the, uh, you know, bold prediction is about technology, I would say, great. And this is about how climate justice, racial justice, economic justice are all interrelated. And if we solely focus on climate, if we solely focus on renewables, we are actually missing the solution and the problem. And so uh, for, for me, the prediction is, and maybe it's not a prediction, it's a hope. The intention I want to put out into the world is that we will work on climate justice in a way that um, honors the systems that have gotten us here. And those are intertwined with economic injustice and racial injustice. And we can't just solve the problem, the climate problem, or we aren't actually going to solve the climate problem. These things are intertwined. And um, that's the only way we're going to sort of survive as a species and move to a just and more just and more equitable world. Erica Mackey is co-founder and CEO of Grid Alternative. She's joining us from her home in California. Uh, thank you so much, Erica, for all the time that you've given. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is a wrap on this discussion, but it doesn't have to end here. Oh, no. If you are eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with social media links, book recommendations, and more at our show notes page on the blog at mysuncast.com. Since you're going to be online, I would love for you to jump over to LinkedIn as well and connect with me if you haven't. And consider not only sharing this episode, but sharing your thoughts about this episode on the post that we've made there about this particular conversation. Trust that Erica and I would genuinely appreciate hearing your thoughts, not only about your takeaways, but how you'd like to see the conversation go deeper or move forward. It's always a real treat to hear from you. So please take a moment and go on LinkedIn. I know that you're already there. Make sure we're connected and share your thoughts with us, please. Well, we'll be back again next week for Tactical Tuesday and a long, thoughtful, deep dive Thursday episode into another entrepreneur's story as we are prone to do. I hope that you'll come back and join us. Have we earned your trust and indeed perhaps your recommendation? Well, thanks again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. And if you want to learn more about our sponsors, you can go to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how you can partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like you twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.